This afternoon we open God's Word both to the Old and the New Testament, beginning with the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. We read the verses 9 through 14. Daniel 7 verse 9 until verse 14. The book of Daniel is filled with various visions that the Lord gave to his servant, and we are reading partway through a very significant vision that he received. We hear God's word then as follows, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him then. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Then let's also turn to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1, reading the second half of that chapter, and in this part of the Bible we hear the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel 7 in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we, we will begin with verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter, Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, 
what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all Our focus this afternoon is on what we confess and the basis of God's word concerning the being seated at the right hand of the Father of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism to page 533, Lord's Day 19, and there the teaching or you could also say the doctrine of the Word of God is summarized and we confess it in this way. Having confessed the suffering, the death, the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, this question is asked, why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. And then, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who, before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake, and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory so far. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you know and as we also paid special attention to this morning, this is Easter Sunday. We are commemorating the resurrection of our Lord from the dead, from the grave. 
At the same time, there is a very close connection between his resurrection and his, what we sometimes call his session, his being seated at the right hand of the Father. Did you notice that in the reading from Ephesians 1 verse 20, they are placed immediately side by side? Once more, going back to verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Here it comes. Which he worked in Christ when? Two things. He raised him from the dead and that same exceedingly great power by which he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Resurrection power is also enthronement power and authority. And in the Lord's providence, also as you are working through the various doctrines of God's word, we have the two side by side today. Resurrection this morning, seated at the right hand of the Father this afternoon. And when the Catechism summarizes God's word concerning this doctrine, this teaching, it's noteworthy that Christ is identified as our head. Please turn with me once again, if you still have it open perhaps, to the Heidelberg Catechism and notice that three question and answers in a row, Christ is referred to as the head or our head. First of all, back one Lord's Day, Lord's Day 18, last question and answer 49. Christ's ascension into heaven benefits us, First, he is our advocate. And then here it comes second. We have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, the members of his body, up to himself. Then the next question and answer. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God, Christ, to manifest himself there as head of his church? And then, once more, so that we don't miss it, 51, the question, how does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? And that description, that identification of Christ as head comes directly from the passage that we read together, Ephesians 1, verse 22 and he, the Father, put all things under his, Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things, but with a special focus to the church. And so, here we together as church confess that, yes, he is our Savior. Yes, he is our Lord. Yes, he is the Messiah, and he is our head. We together as church are his body. And it's remarkable that the catechism would pick this moment with this doctrine to describe our Lord in this way. Because this is when the separation of Christ's ascension and his sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven 
would seem to point out just how far away he is from us. We're here on earth. Christ is, as the children might say, way up there in heaven. It feels so far, so distant. And yet, what could be closer? What, brothers and sisters, is more intimately connected than a head and a body? Yes, he's ascended. Yes, he sits at the right hand of the Father, but make no mistake about it, through the working of the Spirit of Christ, he is not only not absent from us, but he is still so closely united to us. And this head of ours, Jesus Christ, is, as the Holy Spirit will reveal later in this letter to the Ephesians, also our bridegroom. Ephesians 5, verse 23, 4. The husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, the savior of the body. And it goes without saying that when your bridegroom, when your betrothed husband has literally over all nations, all peoples, all languages, literally, Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23, when he has dominion over every single thing in the present and the future, it goes without saying, that makes a big difference also for the bride. And therefore, I may proclaim the good news of Christ's being seated at the right hand of the Father in this way, Christ our bridegroom, our head, is king over everything. And this benefits us in these ways. He rules for us, he enriches us incredibly, and he will also return for us. When this question is asked, as it is here in Lord's Day 19, why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? When we, when we read that, also in Ephesians chapter 1, then we might have the impression that after all of the hard work, after the suffering, after the excruciating labor for our salvation on the cross, that now, having risen from the dead, having ascended to the right hand and being seated at the right hand of the Father, finally our Savior, deservedly so, can step back from the intensity of the labors. That's what we might think. That's the way we sometimes use that word sit in our life, in our language. You know how it is if you have been busy all day long, working hard, perhaps taking care also within your family, running after this, running after that, and then towards the end of the day, maybe after everything's cleaned up, after supper and things are settled down, then we say, and now 
I'd like to sit for a moment and relax, perhaps in your favorite chair or recliner. Or we also have this other saying, when life takes the members of the family off in different directions, some off to work, perhaps some off to school, and everybody's going different directions, then dad or mom or dad and mom together will say, and now we're going to sit down together and we're going to have a meal together. You see, there is something in that word sit that we associate with, now take a break, take a step back from all of the intensities of the work and all of our busyness, and now we relax a bit and we enjoy fellowship. And of course, that's, that's a fine use of the word, but it's not what's intended here in Ephesians chapter 1. Rather, the sitting at the right hand of the Father is not about relaxing after intense work for our salvation, but it has everything to do with ruling. And that sitting to rule is revealed already in Daniel chapter 7 as we read it together Brothers and sisters, if you have Scripture, please open again to Daniel 7 because there's something about this vision. There's something in this prophecy which points forward so clearly and in the end so comfortingly to what Jesus Christ did when He was seated at the right hand of His heavenly Father. This is another vision that is given to Daniel. And in this vision... Behold, Daniel is taken in his mind's eye into the very throne room, the royal ruling room of the ancient of days. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days, the eternal one, God Almighty, was seated where on his throne to do what? To rule. But did you notice that the Holy Spirit says thrones. I watch till thrones, not one throne, but plural. Thrones were put in place. And that should generate a question in our mind. Why thrones in God's throne room? Especially when later on in that verse, after describing in some visionary way God, his garment white as snow, his hair like pure wool, then it's the singular. His throne, not thrones anymore. His throne was a fiery flame. And then again, all of these visionary poetic descriptions of that mighty throne. But the question should still be there in our minds. Yes, but there were thrones. What about the other throne? And then we hear about how the power of the Lord extends over all of the beasts, no matter their horns, no matter how strong, no matter how proud, no matter how pompous they are. It doesn't matter. Their dominion is taken away from them. They may live yet. They may have a season of causing difficulties, but verse 12, their rule, their power, their dominion, whisked away from them. And then 
Remember, we're still wondering about that second throne. I watched in the night visions, and behold, here comes one, like the Son of Man. And he's coming. And he's coming with the clouds of heaven. Do you remember Acts chapter 1? The disciples were gathered, Jesus Christ on the top of the mount, and Jesus Christ was lifted up from their eyes until a cloud hid him from their sight. That was the from the earth view, the disciples looking up. Jesus Christ lifted up, ascended, and then the clouds took him from their sight. But here in Daniel 7, in the prophecy, we have, as it were, a prophetic vision of what happened after the Lord Jesus was taken up into the clouds, and now we get the top-down view from the throne room of God. And we see that this Son of Man, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Bridegroom, He's coming on the clouds of heaven, up, up into the throne room of God. And then verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom over all peoples, nations, languages. And his dominion is even an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom, the one that will never, ever be destroyed. Here is the one who sits on the other throne, the Son of God, yes, but also the Son of Man. This is the miracle of His ascension and coronation. We have a king, King Charles, who is soon to be coronated, but we have a king brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, who has been coronated. He was seated on the throne, but he was also son of man. This is what is so incredible. Who would have ever thought that he who is true, righteous, but also true man would sit on a throne over every tribe, nation, language. In fact, as it's extended in Ephesians chapter 1, not only over the big picture of the nations and their movements and global economy and international relations, but everything right down to your supper table, right down to the sickness that enters your family, right down to the little mundane detail that happens when you go about your work and talk to your customer on Tuesday. Every single little thing and every single big thing, it's all under the rule of him who is son of God, but also son of man. And normally speaking, when someone has such a huge, such an expansive responsibility of leadership, of authority, of dominion, something breaks down somewhere. 
You know this, how it goes with human beings. Perhaps by the circumstance in their life, things get bigger and bigger. They're responsible for more and more. But the wise leader will know he can't do it all. And the wise boss will understand that if he tries to micromanage every little detail about every little job, as that company grows bigger and bigger, it's not going to work. He has to learn to delegate. He has to learn to trust people. But this son of man, please understand, is unique. He is not only son of man, but he's son of God. There is, unlike human beings, there's no limit to his power. There's no point in which he reaches the end and then has to give it over to others. He rules over absolutely everything and he does it with perfection, with wisdom, with steadfastness and holiness. And by the grace of God, he's our bridegroom. And that, quite frankly, changes our perspective on life. Because Normally speaking, when we think about God's control over everything, we think of that under the control of God the Father. It's even there in the Catechism. You can turn back. Lord's Days 9, Lord's Days 10. It's about God the Father ruling over all things, the birds of the air and also over the demons and Satan himself. Father is in charge, we say. And that's also, brothers and sisters, what we reach for, for comfort, and rightly so. We say, even when I don't understand it, even when we don't understand it all, our Heavenly Father knows best. Correct. But our Heavenly Father gives us more comfort than that. For look what we confess here. Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, and extend it, Ephesians 5, as bridegroom of his church, through whom, do you hear that? Through whom the Father governs all things. The Father in wisdom directs all things for the good of his children. And he does so through our bridegroom, who loves us, also loves you enough as a congregation to give up his life for you and even on the cross to go through the suffering of hellish agony for us, for you. And this is precisely the truth that we need when we have our questions. You have your questions. We all do. Why in God's providence is he putting this in my life? Why is this suffering or hardship or sorrow in my life that 
seems to linger so long. The questions go on and on. Why, Lord? Why, Lord? Why, Lord? And sometimes we get caught up in some doubts, too. But there's two answers, not just the one we normally look for. It's more than saying, Heavenly Father knows best. It's also saying, our eternal bridegroom who loves us enough to die for us. He has it all under his dominion. He rules over it all. And no matter what he is ruling over, the big picture, Russia-Ukraine conflict, war, international global relations, tensions, right down to local things that may happen, not only on the political scene, not only on the economic scene, but also on the cultural scene. All of it, brothers and sisters. Your, our bridegroom is ruling over it all with his eagle loving eye upon his bride. That's the comforting truth of Ephesians chapter 1. He has dominion over everything, and then the Holy Spirit says, to the church, for the church. The meaning is, his bride, the apple of his eye, is in his laser focus, no matter what he has under his control. And as he sees his dearly beloved bride, he says, not only will I protect her, Not only will I provide for her, but I, the risen and ascended bridegroom, I am going to lavish her with gifts. He pours out heavenly gifts by his Holy Spirit. He pours out his Holy Spirit. That's the first big gift, Pentecost. But through the Holy Spirit, he keeps on pouring Heavenly gifts. And this afternoon, brothers and sisters, I would like to take you, it can only be brief, but through the list of riches that we receive in the first part of Ephesians chapter 1. And just to pause briefly and to be amazed at the generosity of our bridegroom. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is no chintzy husband. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places all poured out. What does the list look like? Number one. He chose us in Him. He didn't have to do that. He chose us in Christ and said, you're special. You are precious to me. You are my people. He chose us in Him already before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. We come back to that in just a moment. Having predestined us to adoption 
as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. He chose us to adoption. This morning when we were looking at Matthew chapter 28, I mentioned that I wanted to come back to one detail, and that is that the Lord Jesus, when he arose from the dead and when he met the women, he said, do not be afraid, go and tell my brethren, not my disciples, not my apostles, my brethren, my brothers. This is what the suffering, the death, the resurrection, and soon to be the ascension of Jesus Christ accomplishes. We are not simply servants. We are not just redeemed people. We have been chosen to be sons and daughters. We've been brought into God's household. And if we have some sense, brothers and sisters, of what it is to be part of a blessed household, all of our households, they all have their problems, their sin, their misery, but this is God's household. And it's not all perfect within God's household either, to be sure. But to be part of the family of God? Think about it. This is incredible. Why would God ever choose us to be his children and his heirs? That is a gift. But it doesn't stop there. We go back. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. Who here is holy and without blame, blameless? Who here is perfect in cleanliness, perfect in purity, so much so that there's not a guilt, there's not a blame that could be assigned to your account, not one, not the man standing in the pulpit either. And yet, from the right hand of the Father, from the heavenly throne, our husband says, this is the next gift, my bride. I give you clothing that makes you perfectly pure, perfectly clean, so much so that not a person could blame accuse or find guilt, but only in him, not in ourselves, to be sure. It continues. To the praise of his glorious grace by which he made us accepted. You know, so many of us worry about being accepted, being in good relationship with others, but what about God? But he made us accepted in the Beloved in our bridegroom. That's how we're accepted before God. He doesn't push us off. He accepts us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. All of that is taken care of. According to, now do you start to hear it? According to the riches of his grace. You see, 
This is the heavenly gifts being lavished upon us. There's a, there's a richness, there's a generosity to these gifts which flows forth in wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of his will. You know, when you, when you come to church, when you hear the explanation of God's word, when you read within your homes and you come to more understanding of the Bible and catechism and Christian education, we can easily lose sight of what an overflowing gift of wisdom and knowledge and even that prudence, that discernment that is given to us. Not so long ago after a worship service, a mother came up to me and she said spontaneously, I don't think that we have any idea how much knowledge even our little ones have. Through various experiences, just knowing what is known or what's better, not known in the world. In a world that's stumbling around in darkness, but our bridegroom has lavished us with wisdom and prudence and insights into the deepest mysteries of God's very own will. And all of this we have not time for all the details here, but all of this going forward, brothers and sisters, to verse 11, an inheritance. If there's one thing that's clear about an inheritance, you didn't earn it. An inheritance is not a paycheck. An inheritance is a gift that comes from your parents. This is a gift which comes from our Heavenly Father, but guess through whom it comes? Yes, you know by now, our bridegroom ascended and seated at the right hand of God. And therefore, let there also be a certain generosity in the way that we treat others. As God's gifts have been poured out upon us, let us also pour over. And then we think not only of material blessings, that too, but of our time, of our patience, of our love. It's so easy just to do the minimum. But our bridegroom has not given the minimum to us. Anything but. And with these rich gifts, he is preparing us for the day. The day when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. That's also part of being seated. That was there in Daniel 7 too. The court was seated, says that prophecy. The books were opened. And when we, when we think about that day, suddenly all of that glory of all of those rich, undeserved gifts can quickly flee out of our minds. And then we think, we all have to appear before 
the judge. And the books will be opened. There will be no secrets. Here you may try hard and you may keep things secret. People around you don't know, even maybe family members don't know. You keep it hidden from elders or deacons. Probably won't last. But people are trying that all the time to keep things hidden from other people. But in the end, we'll hide nothing from God. The books will be opened. And therefore, when we stand here and we think forward to that day, it can send a shiver through the soul. But remember, who will be our judge? In all my sorrow, in all my persecution, in all my wrestling with all of my guilt feelings, which tends to pull our heads down in shame and difficulty and weight. But here we are reminded, lift up. Lift up your head. Lift up your head in exactly the same direction that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended. Because as the clouds hid him, and he was seated at the right hand of the Father, so the clouds will one day bring him back. Lift up your heads, brothers and sisters. That's how we began Psalm 24. Lift up the heads and eagerly await the very same person who went to the judgment of God upon the cross of Golgotha for you. You see, your Savior is your bridegroom. But your bridegroom is your judge. I repeat, your Savior is your bridegroom. But please don't ever forget it. Your bridegroom is your judge. That's the very same person before whom we will appear on that great day. And that, then, is the way that we can go forward to that day alert, getting ready, repenting of what needs repenting in our lives, but also, as the Catechism reminds us, with comfort. It will be so good to see our bridegroom. Amen.